We welcome all of our new online listeners. Hi, my name is Dr. Stephen Finney, the hosting pastor of XL Church in IOM America. My wife Jane and I are blessed that you decided to join us. XL represents Exchange Life. Our church is an outreach of IOM America. Everything we do sits upon the pedestal of compassion. So let's get started. Enjoy the worship, illustrative videos, prayer, and weekly message.
Today, Lord, we are reminded of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Father, I know for many it is very difficult for us to understand this passage. You said, Behold, I lay in Zion a cornerstone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Father, I believe that many people throughout the lands today are disappointed in you. They have put expectations upon you that are from their self-life. We know that we know that we were born again to be saved from ourselves. Father, to be brought to the point of truly releasing the life of Christ within each of your true, authentic, born-again believers is a miraculous act by the Holy Spirit. We need to live our lives, Lord, according to you actually being the cornerstone. We need to be shown just how we are rejecting that stone. How can we have the rock of salvation, your Son, Jesus Christ, be alive and well within us and released within us to do the work, to live the life on a daily basis? We stumble, Lord. We stumble in disobedience to the Word. We suffer with not really truly believing that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for you, God, being owned by you. We are possessions of you, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of your own life in and through each one of us who really, truly are your bridal members. O God, deliver us from darkness and transfer or translate us into your marvelous light. We are your people, the people of God. Most of us are begging on a daily basis for your mercies. Somehow in our own mind we think mercies is delivering us from circumstances, trials, persecutions, but we know mercy is truly released when we are suffering. I'm also aware, Lord, that you have made it clear to us that we learn obedience through the things that we suffer. I pray for all of us who you have scattered throughout the world to release your gospel in and through us, that we would remain faithful, true, honorable, submitting to the ultimate authority of all, and that is you, O God. May your authentic people understand that you have a plan and all of the conflicts, the wars and rumors of wars are simply birth pangs, warning signs that you are accomplishing your works of prophecies. I thank you for this divine revelation and I pray that every one of us who truly do love you would receive your sovereign will in absolutely everything we do. And we only pray in the power and authority of Jesus' name. Father, we exalt you above all gods. And it is in the names that you have given your Son that we pray today. In Christ's holy name, amen.
Welcome to our weekly online church service. Hi, my name is Dr. Stephen Finney, and I will be your teacher today. We're on a journey, a journey through the book of Revelation. Our main theme is unfolding the power of prophecy, and we are honored that you have decided to join us. Expect to be challenged and blessed. Most Christians today avoid the study of this book. They tend to refuse to be a part of the prophecies that you have laid out before us in a very, very clear way. We refuse to be a part of such a group. The Lord has blessed us with a deep understanding of His prophecies. We pray that all who listen today will be motivated beyond expectation to study His final words to the churches. Please keep in mind as you continue on in this particular series, this book was not written for the unsaved world. It was not to provide even warnings to the unsaved. The book of Revelation was written to His bride, that is us, true and well believers. Today we begin our lesson on the four positions of a believer. Let's get started. Our blessed scripture for today is out of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Listen carefully. This is a very powerful passage. It says, For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a book of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellence of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's take a look at our overview for today. Remembering that the scripture we just read, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellence of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There are some powerful positions being laid out for us in the midst of this small little passage. First of all, God steps up and he calls us a chosen race. That means only one thing. God chose us. We did not choose him. The modality of the Christian world today is to push pressure or lead people to make the choice to receive Christ. The fact is nobody is going to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior unless God has chosen them. Everything is done by God through his sovereignty. And when he chooses someone to become part of the chosen race, 
That's exactly what he does. He makes the choice. A royal priesthood. The word you need to underline there is royal. We're going to talk in detail about each one of these positions here in a few moments, but I want you to understand the importance of being in a royal family. Recently, I was invited to be special counsel to a king in a foreign country. As I was going through the process of being accepted, one of the first things that they had to do was confirm me in their royal family. Being family and being part of a royal family is what gives you the rights to communicate, fellowship, and have relationship with the king. So when we are called a royal priesthood, we are a part of the royal family of the living God. A priest is a leader, a leader that the king will use to communicate with the people. In order to be a part of a royal family, you have to be a part of a holy or royal nation. When God references as a holy nation, he means that we are a nation. The true bridal members of Jesus Christ are a part of the one and only nation that rules all things. The identity marker comes in now with the people. People have to be owned by the king. And that is what this passage is communicating to us. Today, ownership means slavery. It doesn't matter how hard you fight the ideology of slavery, everyone is enslaved. Some are enslaved to sin, some are enslaved to the Antichrist himself, and then there's those select chosen few who are possessions of the living God, which makes us his people. We won't be able to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ if this process of taking us out of darkness into light takes place. We cannot be a people of God until we are translated. We cannot experience the full mercies of God unless we are translated. This passage is truly powerful. Let's review these four positions. Our very first one is chosen generation. The people of God, indwelt Christians, are often represented in his chosen and elected people. Keep in mind that there is a balance between sovereignty and responsibility, and God grants only his children to understand the balance or the unity of the two. This is also very critical in understanding that we cannot receive the understanding of the Holy Scriptures unless we are responsible to embed ourselves and be comfortable within his sovereignty. Sovereignty releases the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit reveals truth. Let's move on to our second one, the royal priesthood. The meaning of this is that the word royal is used only to denote the dignity of the priestly office of the royal family. In our case, the royal family of God. The order of priesthood was transformed after the cross. Christ became the high priest. Indwelt Christians became the priests. And the unsaved world became the people that needed redemption and forgiveness. This is why the Roman state church is in direct opposition to this truth. Their church has the priesthood set up like this. One, the Pope, the high priest. Cardinals and others as priests. 
And then the church, members themselves, are the ones in need of redemption and forgiveness. Thus, members must go through the Catholic priests who have redemption and forgiveness of sins by following their rituals. This model is not only false, but it removes the foundational truths of our new identity and position in Christ. In fact, I believe it erases the foundation of why Christ came to seize the seat of the high priest, to appoint us a royal priesthood, without those two being Confirmed and having interrelationship, the work of God simply cannot be accomplished here on earth. Moving on to number three, a holy nation. This is also taken from Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. The Hebrews were regarded as a nation consecrated to God. And now that they were cast off or rejected for their disobedience... The same language was applied correctly to the people of God had chosen in their place, the authentic indwelt Christian church. True believers, those who accept Christ into their lives, are the new and final nation of God. Yes, there are many Jewish people who have joined this royal priesthood. They have become a part of the royal nation. This is a truth that Satan despises. He is all about setting up his nation as the only nation. He's obsessed over this. We will speak more about this later, but it is called one world government or a socialistic society. Christians are hated by Satan and his followers because we are God's holy and chosen nation. Moving on to number four, a particular people, The word particular in its standard definition would mean that indwelt Christians are distinguished from others. Or in singular, it means quote-unquote a people for a possession that is being chosen children of the living God. They are a people which he himself has secured as a possession or as his own. A people therefore which belong to him and no other. In this sense they are unique as being his. And being such, it may be inferred that they should be specialized in the sense of being unlike others, exclusive in their manner of life. Once we embrace the redemptive work of Christ and we are made new, we are prepared as a distinct and particular people to lead in the new earth he has prepared for us. This truth is foundational for you as a believer. If you do not embrace these four positions, you will suffer from defeat until your death. Once you become born again, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you are a priest of the royal family of God. Believe it or not, if you are truly born again, you are chosen and a chosen child of God. You did not choose him, he chose you. You are also a selected person of a holy nation the nation of God. We will be given positions on this new earth that match the qualifications stated in these scriptures. You are hidden with Christ in God and sit with him right now, if you're born again, in the heavenly places, according to Colossians 3.1. Can you think of a better or safer place to be? Now keep in mind, this is not what we will receive. According to Colossians, after we become born again, It is where we are placed right now. 
Because the one has been granted permission to open the seals, he now reveals the conditions and benefits of redemption. John shows us that we will be given positions of ruling on this earth. We will be assisting Christ in his reign while he sits on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And yes, we will reign with him. And the role that we will play in this 1,000-year reign judgment of Jesus Christ is priests. The earth belongs to Christ, and Satan has relentlessly and ruthlessly attempted to steal what belongs to him, Jesus. Soon and very soon, Christ will come and take back what has always belonged to him. The earth was created by him and for his divine pleasure, according to Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Once his knowledge covers the earth, much like the sea covers it now, we will share in the crown of glory. That means we will lead, reign with him during the thousand-year reign. Depending upon our level of faithfulness to Christ, some will rule over cities, others nations, and many will assist in the leadership of such domains. Because God placed a curse on the earth, found in Genesis 3, the earth presently groans for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Always has, and always will until the moment where he seizes it as his own once again. Here's a curious note of history. Jerusalem will become the headquarters of government during the period called the Thousand-Year Reign. The rulers of nations alive during this time most likely will be the rulers of the Antichrist nations. Good news, Israel, along with the Messianic Jews and the grafted body members, Gentiles, will be given special privileges during this millennium. Plus, we will be candidates for being the leaders of nations on the new earth. That's found in Ezekiel chapter 48, verses 15 through 35. Also in Isaiah 52, verses 1 through 10. And finally in Psalms 47. All the Christians who died and ascended into the arms of Jesus will sit at the right hand of the Most High during the period of earthly government. We will not be under the government structure of any government that the Antichrist has formed, but we will be used by Jesus Christ himself to rule over the entire earth with him. Our only rules will be Christ himself as our groom. We will act much like a queen who sits on the right side of her husband as king. We have so much to look forward to. The best is yet to come. This existence that you call life today is not life. It's the pre-show to things to come. It's a training ground. It's a boot camp. It's a preparatory college that prepares us for what we are talking about. You should eagerly look forward to your life in heaven and your life on the new earth that is to come. I want us to take a few moments and look at the Millennium Chart. This Millennium Chart is basically uncovering the basics of each of the millenniums, which is 1,000 years each. Before I explain the chart, I need to let you know that one day for God is a thousand years for man. He wasn't jesting when he said this. He was revealing the heavenly Hebrewic timeline. So as we go through one full millennium, thousand 
years, we survive one day of the Lord. From the beginning of Adam and Eve in the creation to the end when he destroys the earth is seven days to God. Now, as you can see on the chart, if you look under seventh millennium, that's the thousand-year reign of Christ. It's God's judgment. But more significantly, according to Hebrew guidelines, it is his Sabbath, the day of rest. So all those who are born again and become the royal priesthood, and as I used in the terminology earlier about the bride of Christ being the queen, we will sit at his right side in rest, in peace. Not one of us who are truly indwelt are going to have to worry about going through judgment. It will take 1,000 years of human time to judge every single person in the past and present. There will be no judgment in the future after this time is concluded. The seal is placed on the other end of that gate, and there will be no more humans, demons, or Satan in his triunity, which is the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet. There will be no sin when this chapter closes. So now that we have an understanding of man equals the number six, our basic understanding of theology knows that. Six, six, six is the number of the beast. The number six is the number of man. What Satan has cleverly done has been attached to the number 666. Most Christians identify this number with satanic identification. And there is truth to that because the number 666 being tagged to Satan is his revelation of being able or permitted to rule over man. But it's equally as important to understand that man equals six, and that is six days. Now to us, that day is a thousand years, so therefore there is given six thousand years to man. Now you see the eternal life line in the middle of the diagram with arrows on it. It's forever past and forever future. That life will never end. It never had a beginning. And these six days and then the day of rest for God are dropped into this eternal timeline, thus making 6,000 years for man not very long for God in this eternal timeline. Our first marker there is God created the earth and everything on it, including Adam and Eve. The first millennium was filled with corruption because of sin. Right at the conversion point of our next line, God decided to destroy the earth by flood. He chose one man, a priest, set him aside to be used along with his family to re-engage the second millennium. The second millennium, if you know a little bit about church history, was filled with bondage. The Tower of Babel was built, Babylon was established, and then Egypt. And as we look at the map and we see the activity of this period of bondage, it is disgraceful to the living God. After a thousand years of man, this bondage went through another transition. God establishes the law through Moses. So the second millennium was bondage, the third millennium was establishment of the law. The fourth millennium is when God brought the prophets in to remind the people 
of the law and how they are breaking the law. And that set us up, or should I say that the prophet set us up for the fifth millennium, the coming of Jesus Christ by way of a supernatural conception through a virgin birth. The fifth millennium is absolutely filled with establishing the Christian church, the seven churches. And after the fifth millennium, the age of grace through the sixth millennium was activated. We are living today on the latter edge, the other end of the age of grace. Within that latter end of the age of grace, in fact, it's probably the transitional line, if you could put church history in that line, you're going to find that's when the seven-year reign of the Antichrist occurs. At the end of that seven years, the second coming of Jesus Christ, which ends the end times for man and Satan. Many people have different positions on the rapture, but according to Hebrew laws and codes, I am a firm believer that the rapture occurs on the first second of the tribulation. The first half of that tribulation, three and a half years, it's going to be peace, peace, but there is no peace. Socialism will not work. The second half of the tribulation will be monarchy-style government. Not socialism, not capitalism. It'll be monarchy. Satan will claim to be the king, the ruler of the entire earth. Anyone who resists him gets tortured and put to death. This is what arouses the great king, Jesus Christ, to come and end all the end all. Once that is accomplished, the seventh millennium is activated. The 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ, called the Day of Judgment. For him it is one day, so it is the Day of Judgment. To us it is 1,000 years of judgment. At the end of judgment, after everyone is given their sentence of condemnation and damnation, the earth is ended. It's destroyed by fire. The earth is cracked open. Satan in his triune is thrown into the pit, a burning eternal flames forever and ever. Anyone who refused to accept Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, or simply was not chosen to, will be in that pit with him for eternity. Scripture tells us he will take the earth and throw it into the outer darkness, spinning for eternity in darkness, no solar system, no stars, in pure darkness, with the eternal flame of damnation burning these people and the triune of Satan forever. As ugly as that sounds, it is the truth. Scripture proves it. Once he's accomplished his great feat, remember the New Jerusalem will hover over the Old Jerusalem without touching the ground, this great white throne of judgment and all the judging activity will be done from this New Jerusalem. So all the bridal members will be in the New Jerusalem, will not be affected by the consequences that God himself delivers to Satan and his followers. Once this is accomplished, we are taken off to this new earth, the place that Christ prepared for us. What that new earth looks like or how it's going to function, there's a few passages that tell us a little bit about it, but mostly it's a wedding surprise. And there will be a great wedding feast and festival to celebrate the ending of God's rest becomes the beginning of our rest for eternity. Let's take a look at our list that the angels provided for us in respect to the characteristics of Jesus Christ. It's another scene that is impossible for us to be able to embrace 
without the interpretation of the Holy Spirit from within. We are being introduced to a new layer of worshipers at this point. Angels, many angels, myriads of them. The Greek word used here for myriads is so many that they cannot be counted. They will be all around the throne of God joining in with the four creatures and the elders, 24 of them, crying out with a loud voice and a new statement of doctrinal proclamation. Within this doctrinal proclamation, the seven great, awesome characteristics of Jesus are given. Number one, power, authority to rule over all things. The meaning here is that of Christ being given the ability and competence to exercise dominion and authority of the throne of God to lead and rule over all things in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and everything in between. Universal power cannot be associated with the definition by way of the earth power. It's the type of power that buckles knees and bows hearts. Number two, riches, all of wealth. This statement reveals two things. First, that he has all elements of value placed in his hands. Secondly, that he is the original owner of all things. He paid the price for the reward. And he has the right and prerogative to manage the riches and the inheritance of the Heavenly Father. These riches are not spoken of as mere gold and silver, but rather anything that has value of and for the Father, visible and invisible. Number three, wisdom. He has the keeper of all knowledge of God. All thoughts, desires, and insight belong to the Father. Well, it's handed over to Jesus Christ. He has been given proven truth to use each of these valuable pieces of wisdom as he sees fit. Within this gift, he can choose the best solutions and means to accomplish God's eternal objectives. Please keep in mind his objectives. Do not stop at the end of judgment. It's the beginning. He shall be our king on this new earth. It will be a monarchy system. Socialism will be burned up. Capitalism will be burned up, and monarchy will be forever. Also, with this wisdom, he will show mercy and condemnation when it comes to issues upon the earth. Judgment will be in his hands, and he will make the judgment seat the pivotal point of eternity, literally. Number four, might, the supernatural ability to accomplish his purposes, strength. The type of might stated here is not just a ruler over people, but that of overcoming the great enemy of man and God, and that is Satan. And his hands will be full of control of the winds and the storms and the diseases and the demons and the nations and complete triumph over death in saving his chosen people. It will be an awesome day. Number five, honor. Earned respect by way of payment. That's what honor is. Worthy is the lamb because he was slain. He paid the price. Jesus is given honored by his father because he paid the price for it. Glory, the radiance of the heavenly father. This is the Shekinah glory that has been handed over to Jesus Christ. Glowing, doxa, which means bearing the reputation. Jesus is the receiver of God's glory. 
because he carries the reputation of his father. He radiates or shines forth the face of God. And finally, number seven, blessing. Approval by the Father. That is the Hebrew word picture definition of blessing, approval by a father. When it comes to the bridal members of Jesus Christ, we become approved by Jesus. We are selected. He, as a groom is supposed to do, he selects his bride. He chooses. Those of us who have been chosen to be his bridal members receive his approval and acceptance. Christ himself received this blessing because the Father indwells Christ. And God is delighted and content with the formation of his Son because God is satisfied with himself. In our passage, verse 13 introduces yet another layer of worship. Now we have every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them are ready to join in on this big celebration. Let's try to embrace this truth. The rocks themselves shall cry out in praise. Everything that God ever created will sing out these praises unto him. It is interesting to me that we're not talking about created beings having these voices. We're talking fish, birds, trees, mountains, rocks, etc., All things created say, To him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. In conclusion, we want to keep something in mind here. There's one more new dimension added to this passage, and that's dominion. Kratos in the Greek in this particular passage means literally to use force to manifest the blows and severe punishments which he sends and which man cannot escape. This is a part of God's terrifying power that humanity typically doesn't like to spend much time debating. Particularly in our culture today, people do not want to look at God as a God with magnificent power that has the ability to punish. It's okay, though. One day, they'll get to see his great wrath, and it is a part of his great love. This great wrath is a direct result of punishing every person that insulted a true indwelt believer, persecuted them, or even put them to death. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. That's a big statement. We have not yet seen the level of judgment and vengeance released from God to this date. For most, it's much easier to talk about the fun parts of heaven, the fancy, fluffy little stuff about the love of Jesus. But I challenge you in this, to embrace and accept the dominion, meaning force, of Jesus and his Father. They are not done. As we shift out of the age of grace, the age of law will kick in again for judgment. That's what judgment is. Someone who broke the law must pay. Thank you for joining us today. It's been an honor to serve you. It is our hope that this message stimulates an eternal, internal revival through his indwelling life. Always remember the word of God lives in you if you're born again. Keep in mind that he is the word. He came to dwell among us so that we could behold his glory, the word. 
When you study this complex book of Revelation, remember that the Spirit will make it simple. God is complex. I'm not about to refute that. Jesus Christ himself may be a little complex. I will not refute that. But he gave us the Holy Spirit to be given true authentic understanding of their complexities. And that I am thankful for. Thank you for joining us. Until next time.